0: The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you to turn your Bibles to James chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 18 this morning. James writes... Let no one say when he is tempted that I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself, he tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers, James writes. Every good and every perfect gift is from above. It comes down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will he brought brought he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creation the word of the lord for us today i want to paint for you a couple of real life scenarios joe was going about a normal day at the office Joe had slipped away for lunch And he had returned to his office from lunch He noticed immediately when he walked into the office space that something was different Everyone seemed to be gone As he began to look around the office space, he doesn't see his co-workers He cannot find his boss until finally he enters the room and there in the room stands his boss's wife. Beautiful lady. And as soon as Joe walks into the room, she approaches him and grabs him by the collar and says, Joe, I want you and I want you now. What does Joe do? Joe is a... Red-blooded man who has a natural desire for sexual fulfillment. And Joe's desire has now been met by an opportunity. What would Joe do? Let me tell you about Ann and Sam. The names have been changed for protection. Storm has blown through and destroyed a town. The homes are in ruins. No one has survived. Ann and Sam arrive on the scene to find all sorts of valuables scattered all over the place. They begin to think to themselves, Boy, I could really use some of those things. I have needs. Those things could be sold and could pay some of my bills. Oh, the owners are dead. Nobody's going to miss them. What do Ann and Sam do? They have natural needs. And their natural needs have now been met with an opportunity. So what will they do? In both of those scenarios, real life has crashed into real people. And they find themselves faced with remarkable temptation. Remarkable temptation. And I didn't need to paint the story of Joe and Sam and Ann in order for you to understand that reality because there have, your life has been dotted with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of moments just like those. Not just like those in the detail, but just like those in the reality. Where natural desires that you have are met with an opportunity to make a choice. And temptation has arisen to the surface. What do you do? Today, James has something to say to us about temptation. Now, I know right at the outset that this is a topic of very little interest and very little application to this group. It is likely that temptation is not something that ever enters really the reality of your lives So i'm going to apologize right up front that you're going to be bored stiff this morning And nothing that james has to say will apply to you. I'm going to work hard to try and make it No, the opposite is true, isn't it? Raise your hand if you understand something about temptation Raise your hand if temptation is a reality in your life experience The ones who didn't raise their hands are asleep or checked out. They'll come back to us in a few minutes. James understands how critical this matter is in our lives. That God has called us to be like Christ and to live righteously. And yet we have hundreds and thousands of opportunities to do what is wrong. And James knows that the most critical piece to overcoming and dealing with temptation is knowing where it comes from, what it looks like, and where it leads us. And so he's going to talk to us in this text about that very thing. He's going to tell us where temptation comes from. He's going to tell us a little bit about its nature. What does it look like? And he's going to tell us where It leads us and where it takes us. And he's going to do it in language and images that are so clear that it's almost rattling a bit. He's going to use illustrations from life that are so common to us that you just can't miss his point. He's going to talk about, especially people like us in the southeast United States, he's going to talk about fishing. Know about fishing over here. He's going to talk about astrology and the stars and the planets. And he's going to talk about childbirth. Three common illustrations that all are going to be utilized by James to teach us something about the source and the nature and the destination of temptation. And it's critical that we understand these things. I want you to go immediately to verse 16 in our text because I think it is sort of the critical sort of fulcrum on which the whole text balances. James says in verse 16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Do not be deceived. Everything that James has to say to us about temptation hinges on the reality that the foundation Of temptation Is deception Alright, I want you to say that With me, okay The foundation of temptation Is deception One more time The foundation of temptation Is deception Alright That's a rhythmical way For you to remember That temptation is always In every case Based and built On the foundation of of lies. It's always about lies. Every time you and I give in to temptation and we sin, we do so because we believed a lie. We've been deceived. We've been deceived. The foundation of temptation is always deception. Every temptation comes to us as a lie, and we'll see that a bit more as we move along. Underneath all of our temptations is a lie or a series of lies And there are always lies that are disguised as the truth Right Two sort of classic illustrations of this We could go to Genesis chapter 3 The Garden of Eden First man, first woman No one is exempt from temptation The first got it and you get it Adam and Eve in the garden You remember the story? Everything in the garden is yours just don't eat of that one tree. If you eat of it, God says, here's the truth. You will surely die. Even if your name's not surely, you will still die. You will certainly die. That's the truth. That's the reality. And you know how the story goes. Eve is dallying along to the garden. And what do you know she becomes? She comes across the tree. And what do you know? In the tree is a serpent. And the serpent enters into a conversation with her. And the serpent becomes a vessel through which temptation enters her life. And the temptation that comes across her plate, as we'll see, is built on lies. Verse 1 of chapter 3 of Genesis, The serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The deception begins. Is that what God said? Did God say you shall not have eat of any tree in the garden? It's not what God said. God said you can eat of any tree in the garden, just not that one. So the truth is already being twisted into a deception. It goes on to say, well, the woman said, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shouldn't eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now Eve is already deceived. Did God say you shouldn't touch the tree? He just said you shouldn't eat from it But she's already confused about what's true and what's not But the serpent said to the woman You won't surely die You won't die If you eat this thing, you will not die Now that, my friends, is a lie Because God has said, if you eat it, you will die But see, the temptation comes and it takes the truth And it turns it on its head and presents it as a lie and presents the lie as the truth. Oh, no, no, no. You won't die. Here's the reality. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Eat it. if you, God has been withholding from you this whole time. He just doesn't want you to get the good thing that's going to come when you eat this thing. It's all lies. It's all lies. But then again, deception is the foundation of every temptation. You remember, there was an event in Jesus' life when He encounters Satan and Satan brings across His plate three temptations. You can read about that in Matthew 4. I won't take the time this morning to do that. But in every case, when Satan brings temptation even to the very Son of God, every one of the temptations He brings is built of a deception but because jesus is the son of god and he is well acquainted with his word he sees through the deception and the lies and he stands to the temptation and he stands against it with the truth but the reality is the same whether you're jesus in front of satan or whether you're mary and joseph mary and joseph i got christmas on my mind adam and eve in the garden of eden the foundation of the temptations in front of you are always deceptions. There are always lies, always lies. And the common lies that James is going to address in this text about temptation are lies about where temptation comes from and what it looks like, lies about the nature of man and lies about the nature of God. and James is going to attempt to correct those things that you and I might understand this issue better and that we might be able to find some victory in our life over this matter of temptation. So what's the first part that James talks about here? He talks about temptation's source. He's going to expose some deception about temptation's source. And here's the first point. Temptation's source. It's not God. It's me. It's not God. It's me. Verse 13. Let no one say when he's tempted. I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one the beginning of verse 14 but each one is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires here's lie number one lie number one that's sold to us in this area of temptation when I'm tempted and sin it's somebody else's fault when I'm tempted and sin it's somebody else's fault James exposes here the human natural tendency to find someone else to blame for everything we've done wrong. We live in a culture that is built off of blame. Right? It's built off of blame. Nobody is responsible for anything anymore. Am I right? I mean, it doesn't matter which way you turn. You turn on the television and you see typically... Politicians, and what politician has ever done anything? They've never done anything. Everything that they're accused of, it's not their fault. It's somebody else. It's this person. It's that person. If you're a Republican, it's the Democrats. If you're a Democrat, it's the Republicans. The problem is always with somebody else. It can't possibly be with me. Politics is built off of assigning blame to other people. It's born into our children, right? Those of you who are parents, I mean, how early is it that you start seeing this pop out in your household? Johnny, why did you do that? I didn't do that. The cat did it. The dog did it. Somebody else did it. A ghost ran in and did it. I don't know. I didn't do it. We could literally be there with the matches over the fire. I didn't do it. It's not me. I didn't do it. Somebody else. Modern psychology is built off of the reality that hardly anything is our fault I mean if anything that we do it's not our fault. It's not because of us It's because of it's because of our childhood and how people treated us when we were young or it's because we have some Sort of an empty love tank inside of us that hasn't been properly filled It's not our fault It's because we have an ego and an id that are battling it out and and we're just innocent bystanders in the battle It's not our fault it's not my fault that I do what I do. It's my parents' fault. They, they did a bad job raising me. It's not my fault. It's, it's my boss. I mean, if he just would treat me the right way, I would do what I ought to do. It's not my fault. It's her fault. If my wife would just, you know, submit like God calls her to, I wouldn't have to be mean. Right? It's not my fault. It's always someone else's fault. We laugh about that, and rightly so, because it's almost humorous how committed we are to the issue of blame when we sin and when we're tempted. We will do go to almost any extent to find someone else to scapegoat so that we don't have to take responsibility for what we do. And James says When you're tempted and you sin, you've got no one else to blame. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by, say this part with me, his own desires. When I'm tempted and I sin, the problem is not by someone outside of me. The problem is what's going on inside of me. The problem isn't somebody else. The problem is the man in the mirror, to quote Michael Jackson. When I'm tempted to sin, it's somebody else's fault. No, it's not. When I'm tempted in sin, it's my own fault. It's something within me that's gone wrong. It's not something that's been done to me. Lie number two is an offshoot of lie number one, and that's this. Since God is sovereign, temptation is his fault. That's really the blasphemous result of lie number one. If I can't find anyone else to blame in proximity... I'm just going to blame God because ultimately he's sovereign and he controls everything and he knows my weaknesses I might say and so if God just hadn't brought that thing across my plate, I wouldn't have done that Right If God hadn't put me in that position I'd have been fine God knows my weaknesses. he going to kept those things away from me? So ultimately temptation is his fault That comes out in all sorts of ways. Rarely do people come out and say, well, it's God's fault. No, this is what they say. Things like this. That's just how I am. This is the way God made me. That's another way of saying, it's God's fault, not mine. Let no one say when he is tempted, James says. I'm being tempted by God. Because James says, God is not like that. Yes, God made me, but God made man perfect. Mankind has rejected God, and mankind has chosen to sin, and the result of that choice is a corrupted nature, corrupted desires, and a corrupted mind. And every one of us possesses all three. A corrupted nature, a corrupted mind, and corrupted desires. And all of those things reside within us. God is not the author of our sin Nor is he the source of our temptation the truth is The source of my temptation is my own desires within me Temptation is an inside job That's what it is. It's an inside job There is nowhere to run there is nowhere to hide there is no one to blame every single time I sin I'm the problem and every single time you sin, you're the problem. We will never find victory over temptation in our life until we settle that matter right there. Something inside of me is the source of my problem. And as a result, I am accountable for what I do or don't do. What is the source? He says it. the source of temptation is our own desires. Natural desires gone too far. We in Charleston know something in the last few years about floods, don't we? we, we live, we're, we're blessed to live in a place near water with all sorts of beautiful rivers. I grew up just... A short walk from the Ashley River. And I can remember as a child going down the Ashley River and swimming in the river. I'm not sure if you could do that in the Ashley River. Now, it might not be healthy, but you, you, could, you could swim in the river. You could boat on the river. You could go fishing in the river. The river was a source of, of, of life for the whole entire ecosystem. It was a source of, of, of fun and pleasure. You could play on the water and go fishing, do all sorts of great things. Rivers are beautiful things. They, they, they're sources of water for all of the vegetation around. A river is a wonderful creation of God. But a river is only a wonderful creation of God when it runs within the banks that it's designed to run within. When a certain quick influx of additional water comes in the form of a flash flood and that river crests its banks and turns into a flood, something that is beautiful and natural and good and helpful turns into something that is now uncontrollable and destructive. You've seen the videos online, haven't you? Of the rivers cresting and the floodwaters flooding through uncontrollably in every direction and washing away cars and washing away homes and picking things up and moving them around and smashing them. A river is a beautiful thing when it runs within its banks, but when it overflows its banks, it is uncontrollable and it is destructive. And that is a perfect illustration of what James is talking about when he says to you and me that the source of our temptations are within us and there are desires. The reality is God has wired us and made us with certain desires that are natural desires, that are good desires, that are healthy desires when they run within the banks that God has designed for them to run. But what can happen in our lives is there in, in response to various stimuli that the natural desires can flood the banks They begin to run out of control and destroy. It is our natural desires run amok that are the source of our temptation. Not all of our desires are evil, but all of our desires have the capacity to become evil. Did you catch that? Not every desire that we have is an evil desire, but all of our good desires have the potential to To become evil desires Natural desires taken too far Cresting the banks It's natural to want to eat It's natural to Enjoy good food Right? How many of you like to eat? It's a good thing You need to eat to live But it's also something God's given us to enjoy It's okay to have a meal because you enjoy it Nothing evil about that But that desire, taken too far, cresting the banks becomes gluttony. And gluttony is a sin that destroys. It's not a natural desire to want to have good things. There's nothing wrong with wanting to have a a home and to have a, a car that works and that you like. There's nothing wrong with having some things in your life. God has blessed you with the ability to have those things. But when my desire for things crests the bank... And I begin to desire things that don't belong to me. A natural desire has now become lust. And it's a sin. It is a natural desire to desire sexual fulfillment and sexual pleasure. Sex is a wonderful gift from God. It is God-given. It is wholesome. It is a natural desire. It is a river that is intended to flow within God-designed banks. One man, one woman within the banks of lifelong commitment of marriage. And in between those banks, it is a wonderful, beautiful, natural gift from the Lord. But when it overflows those banks... Becomes uncontrollable and destructive. A wife begins to burn with sexual desire and sexual fulfillment with someone other than her husband. A man begins to burn with desire for another man. A man or a woman begins to burn with desire for a fantasy on a screen. And all of a sudden, a natural desire overflows the banks and now it's out of control and destructive. It's natural to desire wealth for our families It's natural to want to have a good job and make a a good living So that you can supply the needs of your family wealth by nature is really a neutral commodity It's a blessing from the lord in many ways A desire to work and earn a good living is a wholesome natural desire But when that desire overflows its banks and it causes me now to neglect my family or to neglect god in the pursuit of those things It's now out of control and destructive A desire to put some money away for the future and for unforeseeable circumstances. It's a good desire. It's an exercise of wisdom in our life to prepare some for the future. But when that desire overflows its banks and we become misers and we neglect the needs of others and we refuse to obey God in the area of our giving, then what is a natural desire has overflowed its banks and it becomes out of control and it destroys The source, James says, of our temptation is within us. It's natural desires that flood the banks. At the end of my life, I'm going to stand accountable for it. And James is saying, when I do that, there will be no one else to blame for anything I've done. The source of all my problems resides within me. The source of every temptation resides within me. The source of every sin resides within me. I will not be able to stand before God and say, well, it was him, or it was her, or it was you. All that will be exposed because it's not God, it's me. That's temptation source. Natural desires that flood the banks. Well, what's its nature? The nature of temptation Is even more direct. It's death packaged as pleasure. That's the nature of temptation. It's death packaged as pleasure. And here's where James brings us the good southern fishing illustration. Each person is tempted, he said, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That's a great illustration. The language of lured and enticement there is the language of fishing. That's where those words come from. And he's painting a fishing illustration. The NASB and the NLT actually do a better job of translating this. If you look at those translations for that part, the NASB says this, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed. The NLT says the temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. Language gives us this, this image of, of being dragged away Or as the N A S B carried away You don't catch that somehow in the ESV translation of this For some reason they didn't, they didn't capture that But it is, a, it is a picture of fishing It is the picture of fishing And fishing as an exercise is built on nothing other than deception, right? That is what fishing is It's a huge deception Those of you who are master fishermen You are master deceivers that's what you are Thankfully, you're deceiving fish and not people, but that's what you do the whole thing is the whole that's the whole trick the, the whole point is to trick the fish Making him believe that what he's about to eat is something other than what it actually is The fisherman puts bait on the hook he tosses the bait in the water and he wiggles it in front of mr. Fish And says care fishy fishy Doesn't it look good eat it? It's a huge deception. How does this play out from the fish's perspective? Imagine you're Billy the bass and you're swimming around. One morning, you leave your little bass hiding spot under a log or something. And little Billy, you go out for a swim and you're going about your normal fish business and you're swimming along and doing what you do as a bass. And all of a sudden out the corner of your eye, you see something there in the water. You see something there dangling in the water. And all of a sudden, you think, man, I'm hungry. That little bit that I had for breakfast just isn't cutting it anymore. It's noontime. And that thing over there looks pretty good. I think I'll go in and take a closer look. And Billy the Bass swims over and he takes a closer look. And the more he looks at that thing, the hungrier he gets. Now you might think to himself, now something just doesn't look quite right about that thing. But the more he looks at it, the hungrier he gets. And if Mr. Fisherman wiggles it just right, wiggles it just right, bang, Billy bites. And Mr. Fisherman immediately sets the hook. And all of a sudden, in an instant, Billy the bass realizes he's made a dreadful decision. All of a sudden, he realizes he's been deceived. He tries desperately to swim away, to spit it out, but he's hooked. And Mr. Fisherman starts reeling desperately, and Billy the bass is literally dragged away to the boat. That is the illustration that James gives us of temptation. That that's exactly what temptation is like. Temptation is death packaged as pleasure. It's, it's, it's something is dangled before our eyes, and it's presented to us as something that will bring us pleasure. When in reality, it's death. And that's exactly how temptation captures us. It operates in us that way We have natural desires within us Like Billy the Bass' desire to have lunch We have natural desires And when exposed to the right stimuli Those natural desires easily overflow the banks And the longer we, we linger on the stimuli The more the temptation grows And we begin to rationalize the potential And we tell ourselves things like It can't be that bad Nobody will know It won't hurt just a little And the river starts cresting its bank And we hang around the stimuli long enough We take a closer look and the desire continues to grow And it begins to overflow the banks And now it's getting harder and harder to control And the longer we linger the more likely We're going to take a bite And eventually the desires are now flooding out of control that's how temptation works it's death packaged as pleasure and sold to us as pleasure it lures us it entices us in order that it might drag us away a couple of notes here that I think are helpful not every fish is attracted to the same kind of bait we're using the illustration of fishing do you know how much fishing bait there is out there go to Walmart sometime and look down the fishing out. I got a picture. I mean, look at all that. That's a lot of different bait. Why is there so much bait? Well, because there's lots of different fish. And all the different fish like different things. They have different things that attract them. A good fisherman knows that certain bait attracts certain fish. And there's some sort of an art to knowing those things. You can't just go out in the river and throw any old thing out there and expect you're going to catch fish. You can get an old chicken bone and throw it out there. Think you're going to catch a bass? It's not going to happen. If you want to catch a bass? You're going to use a certain kind of bait. If you want to catch a brim, you're going to use something different. If you want to catch a catfish, well, I think they eat most anything, but you put a hook in it. And you want a rainbow trout? Something else. Different kinds of bait for different kinds of fish. Same is true of people. Not every person is attracted to the same kind of bait either. Are they? Bait is useless unless it corresponds to one of our natural desires. When I'm tempted to gluttony, you can dangle a sushi roll in front of me all day long. And it will be no temptation whatsoever. Because I hate sushi. I don't care how pretty you make it look on the plate, I will not touch it. And I certainly will not engage in gluttony with sushi. Because I don't like it. It grosses me out to think about it. And if you tell me it's okay, you don't have to have the kind with raw fish, then I think, well, then why do I need it at all? If I want fish, I'll cook it and eat it. But you throw across my radar a slice of red velvet cheesecake from the Cheesecake Factory, and now we're on. It's on. The river is cresting quick. See, the point I'm trying to make is the bait is not the problem. The bait is not the problem. The problem is the desire within me that overflows the banks in response to the stimuli. We're all wired differently, every single one of us. The corruption in our sinful nature affects each one of us differently. The circumstances of our lives can shape the things that we're attracted to. Not everyone is tempted in the same way by the same things and to the same degree. There are things that are remarkable temptations for some of you that have absolutely no appeal in my life whatsoever. And there are things that are temptations that are very, very real to me that have absolutely no power to attract you at all. It doesn't make me better than you or you better than me. It just makes us all people. We're all fish. And each one of us is wired with a different kind of desires and a different set of desires. And any of those desires can be stoked by the right stimuli at the right moment and can cause the the, the floodwaters to begin to rise in the level of our desires. It's this very thing that legalistic Pharisees in the church tend to overlook. We can become very pious and judgmental in condemning the sins in others that have no attraction to us. Overlooking the sins that attract us greatly. None of us is immune to temptation. The only difference between us is what type of bait we're attracted to. That's it. The temptation is the same, to disobey God, to sin, to do what is evil. The end result is the same, destruction and death. The moment we think we're immune to temptation, we're done. We're dead. You say, well, where does the bait come from? Where does the bait come from? If the temptation doesn't come from outside of me, it comes from, where does the bait come from? Well, James doesn't address that. Paul does in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. He addresses three enemies of our soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. These are powers that used to enslave us before we came to know Christ. But when we came to know Christ as believers, we were freed from the enslavement to these captors. They no longer have the power to enslave us or to condemn us to an eternal hell. Christ has rescued us from that enslavement. But they haven't gone away. And they don't leave us alone. They can no longer enslave us, but they can continue to dangle before our eyes, bait. They continue to lure us and entice us. But remember, it's not their fault. All they can do is dangle the bait. If I bite, it's me. It's my desires that are the problem. That really leads us to lie number three, which is this. And people believe this. It is sort of the the prevailing thought of our culture. If it looks good, if it feels good, and it brings me pleasure, it must be what? It must be good. You hear this as a defense for behavior all the time, don't you? Well, why do you want to deny something to somebody that's good? It makes them happy. It makes them fulfilled. They enjoy it. Who are you to tell them not to do it? It's a lie. If it looks good, if it feels good, if it brings me pleasure, it must be good. That is the stupidest, most foolish lie that anybody, I think, believes. It is the exact opposite from reality. What James is actually telling us is the truth is that every single temptation is a lure and an enticement which is intended to inflame my desires. The fact that it tempts me is the only way that it tempts me is if it's made to look good. And to feel good and to bring pleasure. Just because something looks good, feels good, and brings me pleasure, that means absolutely nothing. It may be something good, or it may be an illusion hiding a hook, waiting to kill me. It's just a little bit of drugs. They help to ease my pain. They make me feel better. Why do you want to take that away? My husband doesn't listen. He's mean. The guy in my office gives me compliments. I know that money isn't mine, but nobody will know. I have bills to pay. This will help. The reality is God defines what's good and God defines what is evil. And the only way we know Whether a desire is a good desire or an evil desire is to compare it to what God has said. He has given us his word as a guide and he alone determines what's good and right and wholesome and fulfilling. Let me show you a graphic. The trajectory of temptation. Let me just show you this because our time is already up. Go ahead and put the whole thing up to two clicks. There you go. This is a good way of understanding James 1, 2 through 4 that Pastor Frank brought to us a couple weeks ago and the passage we're looking at this morning. There's two sorts of trajectories. Things come into our life, trials. James tells us in verses 2 through 4, God can bring along trials in our life, or troubles, if you will. But they're intended, they're intended for a good purpose. Our our lives are are, are polka dotted with various trials and we're to engage those trials with a joyful attitude Because we understand that these trials are meant to exercise our faith and to teach us endurance And the long-term goal of that is to bring us to maturity They become then for us a pathway to, to spiritual maturity and that is a good thing But the same word for trial is the word for temptation there are also stimuli that come across our life that, that stoke desires that are evil desires. And those temptations, when we dwell on them, when we focus on them, when we continue to, to, to glare at them and to cast our gaze toward them, take our desires over the banks and they become a lust. And the more we obsess over those things and the more we think about those things and the more we engage in those things, they lead us right into sin acting on our evil desires. And the more we act on our evil desires, the less uh, we're convicted by it, and the less concerned we are about it, and the more accustomed we come to it. And the next thing you know, that sin has now become a, a fixed habit in our life that we no longer even think about. We just do it. And James uses the other illustration to vividly picture how that goes. He says it this way. He says desire when it's conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it's fully grown brings forth death. It's a pregnancy illustration. Desire is pregnant. And if and, and desire, if it's allowed to go on, it eventually is going to give birth to sin. And that sin, when it grows and matures and is allowed to continue, it destroys. It destroys. Go back to that trajectory for us, if you would, Ben. This is how it works. Temptation works like that bottom illustration. The, the stimuli is in front of us. And the temptation arises within us. A natural desire threatening to cross the banks in response to what's in front of me. And I have choices to make. What am I going to do? If I do like Billy the bass and I swim around and I take a closer look and I give some thought to it Then quickly I begin to rationalize why it won't be so bad Why nobody will know And all the lies I begin to bite them one after the other mentally Until the next thing, you know, I bite And I sin and the hook is set And then tomorrow, when the same stimuli comes along, it's a lot easier to just go ahead and bite it. And it is the next day, too. Until that now becomes a part of my lifestyle. All the while, I blame other people. While the hook is dragging me to the boat. What do we do about this stuff? How do we deal with it? Just remember rags rags here's what you do this isn't a full picture and we don't have time to play it out just put the whole thing up there for us Ben if you would four things to do how to respond when evil desires are responding to stimuli and are threatening to crest the bank inside of your heart the best and most efficient means to deal with it is to run away get away from the stimuli it's Joe in the office with the boss's wife. Or if you prefer the biblical story, it's Joseph and Potiphar's wife. You take off out of that room. If you have to leave your jacket behind in her hands, you get out of there. You run away. There are things in your life you need to run away from. You know it. You know what your weaknesses are. I know what my weaknesses are. And I know the places and I know the people who stimulate those desires. the best thing I can do in my life is avoid those places and avoid those people and if I find myself accidentally around them the first thing and the best thing I can do is get away get away if you're Billy the Bass you get away from the lure run run the second thing is just to avoid avoid and that really is related to the first one Avoid the places, avoid the people. Avoid the environments where you know there are stimuli that will stimulate desires that you're particularly attracted to. You know, this came up in a conversation with somebody recently. We talked about alcohol. And, you know, for some people, alcohol is a tremendous temptation. Even just to be around it. People who are alcoholics, just to be around it, can take them from zero to a hundred in about a second. And they have no control. For other people, it's zero temptation at all. You said wine with your dinner, beer with a football game. No effect. You never get drunk. You're not tempted to drunkenness. You're not tempted to cross any of those lines. It just has no power over you. But for the next person, it does. And if you're one that knows that that's a weakness of you, then you avoid the places where that's going to be. You don't hang out in the bar. You don't go over to the people's house that you know are going to be serving alcohol. You just stay away. So well, people think I'm unsocial. Yeah, okay. Do you want to be hooked and drugged to the boat? Do you want to be someone's dinner? No. Avoid it. Guard your thought life. Guard your thought life. All temptations begin as thoughts. How does a young man keep his way pure, the psalmist writes? By keeping it according to your word. That's the last one. Jesus slayed temptation by speaking the truth in the middle of the deception. Run, avoid, guard your thoughts, stay in God's word. Just ammunition for facing temptation. It's coming if if you're not dealing with it right now. So my question to you is this. How do you respond to all of that? What about temptation? What things tempt you right now? Are you rationalizing and saying, well, at least the thing that I'm doing isn't as bad as the thing that I know they're doing. I'm not killing anybody. I'm not cheating on my spouse. I'm just gossiping. I'm just telling a few little white lies that stretch the truth a little bit. Which things are you rationalizing in your life? Which things have, have you done so long that they've just become fixed habits in your life? And you don't even fight them anymore. But you know that God has called them sin. Who are you blaming right now for the sin in your life and the temptation? Who is it you're blaming? Is it somebody else? Is it your spouse? Is it your boss? Is it your neighbor? Are you Are blaming God? You need to come to terms this morning with the real problem. The real problem is you, and it's inside of you. The good thing is we serve a God of grace. Is a God of, it's all about new beginnings and fresh starts. And even though we give in to temptation, He is willing and able to forgive those who come to Him in repentance, believing and embracing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Christ has died for our sins, and that His death has bought us not only forgiveness of sins, but He's given us the power to say no to what is evil. He's given us the power to run, to avoid, to guard. But we have to choose to activate those things. Let's pray together. God, temptation is real for every one of us. If there was a movie screen in the building right now that could display the things that tempt us, for everyone else to see every one of us in this room, would be utterly humiliated and embarrassed. And we've built so many strategies into our life to rationalize our temptation and our sin. We love to blame. We love to deny. We love to rationalize. And yet you've told us clearly in the Word that we are the problem. God, I pray for that that man who's sitting here hearing this this morning and his heart is burning because as soon as I said the word temptation immediately came to his mind the very thing and the very area in which he falls so often. God, I pray that you would cause that to come to the surface of his life right now. That he would look you face to face and he would confess, Oh God, the problem is me. Help me to stop blaming. Help me to stop rationalizing. Forgive me. And help me to run away. For the woman who's here, and the very same thing is true, she knows the real temptations of her life, the subtle sins that have become settled habits that she's been blowing off for a long time. is no big deal. Oh, my God! You know it. It's nothing other than pleasure, packaged as de- a as death packaged as pleasure, and that little thing has the potential to kill her. Draw her to yourself this morning in repentance, Lord, that she might embrace you by faith, find your forgiveness and a fresh start. Equip her this afternoon and tomorrow to run away, to avoid, to guard her thoughts in this area and to fill her mind with Your Word. Only You can give us victory. We are, we are susceptible. Help us, O oh God, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.